Our text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, which is kind of far back in your New Testament. It's uh, right after the tiny book of Philemon, if that helps you. I'm sure it does. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 3 through 11. This is the Word of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us ourselves in your word and that you would show us yourself in your word. We confess and believe what the scripture says about itself, that in the moments when the man of God stands in front of the people of God and preaches from the book of God, that your Holy Spirit enters into that process and things happen which couldn't happen without your Holy Spirit. Supernatural things. We are corrected, we are rebuked, we are exhorted, and strengthened, we are trained in righteousness. We pray, King Jesus, that you would do all that you have purposed to do in us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I got to I got to just tell a quick story. Sometimes it's before I dive into the sermon. Sometimes it's good to uh, to testify about what the Lord has been doing in our lives and. You know, on this trip, I just had a wonderful times with the Lord and actually kind of resolved some things in my own heart that, uh, that you know, the Lord has been working with me on. And, and then on the, on the way back, we stopped in Davenport, Iowa, where my brother lives, and we make it a habit when we're passing through there to have lunch with him at Cracker Barrel. Uh, and we did that this time again. My kids said... we. They couldn't say uncle when he was young, so they, call, they came out monkey, so he's Monkey Steve. And uh, they, for some reason, think that having lunch with Monkey Steve is one of the best parts of the whole trip. And uh, he is quite a character, so maybe that's true. And um, we had lunch with Monkey Steve and then got in the van and, and uh, drove across the street to get gas. And uh, normally in the summer, I like to leave the vehicle running while I get gas. I know you're not supposed to do that but I do it anyway because I don't want the car to heat up and we had dogs and children and everything else. I was going to do that and then I realized that my wife just really doesn't like it when I do that. 
She just is uncomfortable with it. I think actually she just likes being hot, and that's her only chance to be hot on the whole trip because I've got the AC cranked all the way up. Anyway, I turned off the car, filled it up with gas, and went to turn it back on, and the battery in that moment completely died. And I was like, holy cow, what's going on? I mean, we couldn't even roll down the windows. The computer was giving us all these strange errors, and I was like, okay. But I was able to call my brother and get a, a new battery and get it in the car, and it only delayed us by about 45 minutes or an hour. And I, I was, as I was driving away, I was thinking, if I had not turned it off, then it would have failed the next time I turned it off, and I wouldn't have been in my brother's hometown and have him five minutes away. And so just the kindness of God in those little details, uh, the faithfulness of God, even in those moments of minor trial and tribulation, those are stories we ought to tell to one another. Just the, the protection and the goodness of God, the provision of God. Well, on to deeper things. Perhaps there's a no issue in human life that's more misunderstood in our day than the issue of pain. Um, we are taught almost from birth that uh, pain is intrinsically uh, and necessarily evil and that the avoidance of pain is the highest good. And the corollary to all of this, of course, is that for a person to inflict pain on another person is one of the most wicked things that you can do to another person, whether that's physical pain or psychological pain or emotional pain. We've got, you just think of all the things now that uh, 40 years ago weren't labeled abuse, but now are. And I'm not saying there's not some value in identifying those things as wrong or abusive, but the idea is anything that causes me pain is evil. And uh, the mitigation and the avoidance of pain is now our guiding philosophy. And this is true from the highest echelons of our society down to the lowest. If you think about most of our political uh, discussions these days, they, they really center around uh, the avoidance of pain. Uh, politicians spend money and create programs to ease the pains of their constituents, whether those constituents would be minorities or the poor or immigrants or small businesses or large businesses. And the, the cry of each constituency is, pay attention to me and relieve my pain. Great inflation is endemic in our universities because our college students can't really be expected to master information, and they certainly can't be expected to live with the consequences of not mastering information, like getting a C or a D or even an F. I mean, an F would be painful, and it might mean that you can't get a good job, and you have a right to a good job, and, and that would make you feel bad about yourself, and we can't have that because Poor self-esteem is painful. And of course, each college student learned that poor self-esteem is painful and that pain ought not to be tolerated long before he or she got to college. Uh, we learn it in elementary school. We've been conditioned to avoid pain at all costs. It's interesting that there's been a, some scientific research done um, if you know anything about long distance running, which obviously I don't, um, but the, the, there is one group of people that has consistently dominated professional 
marathons, and it's Kenyans by and large. And so the, the scientists, the research scientists are trying to understand why is it that these people are so phenomenally successful at marathon running? And they are amazing. And you know they're looking for physical and biological causes and they didn't find a great deal of difference between the Kenyans and other folks that aren't as successful. And so they started looking into cultural practices. And one of the things that they noticed is that Kenyans by culture are conditioned to deal with pain and ignore pain far longer than people from other groups, even people of the same race from other groups. And that they think now that that ability to just say, pain is a given in this sport of marathon running and I'm just going to endure the pain and win this marathon, and they do it, they, the ability to do that gives them an edge. Well, we don't think that way anymore. Of course, we see uh, fear of pain in medicine, we see it in economics, we see it in our relationships. We say things like, well, I, I can't tell that person the truth. The truth would be painful. So it's better to lie and say that everything's all right, even when it's not. And, and it's gotten to the point where we are even unable to appropriately discipline our children because to discipline a child is to cause that child some level of pain or discomfort. And since in our thinking, for one person to cause pain to another person is by definition a wicked thing to do. And because we love our children, we don't want to do wicked things to them. And so we don't do anything that would ever cause them pain or discomfort. We bulldoze things out of their way so that they don't have to endure pain and discomfort. And that's not good. And so of course, when we become Christians, and we hear about a God who becomes our loving Heavenly Father, and we're adopted into His family. We hear that this God is all-powerful, and, and He's pledged Himself and His Word to do us good. And then when painful trials come, we are utterly disoriented when these things happen. And we think to ourselves, I am in pain, and this sovereign God is either causing it or at least he's allowing my pain. And this God says that he loves me and, and this is creating such a sense of cognitive dissonance for me that I'm forced to rethink who God is. And so very often they come to the conclusion either he's not good or he's not in control or he's not there. Let me add a fourth option. The infliction of pain is not necessarily a bad thing after all. Or at least given the realities of our fallen world and our sinful selves, the infliction of pain is the use of a lesser evil in the service of suppressing a greater evil with the goal of a good outcome. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, isn't it? First, let's define some terms for ourselves so that we're all singing from the same hymn book, so to speak. We're all on the same page. What is discipline? Discipline is the controlled and careful application of pain, which is designed to correct, to train, to recover, or to reform somebody who is on a wrong path or who is in an immature situation. True discipline is always done in love. It's always done with the other person's well-being in mind, and it's always designed to form a certain kind of character in the recipient. Punishment, on the other hand, 
in the way that we're going to define it today, is the application of pain simply to satisfy the demands of justice. It's retribution. You know, Gandhi is famous for uh, criticizing the Bible, uh, and, and, you know, there's the, that old principle in the Scripture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. That's a biblical principle. It comes from the Old Testament. And Gandhi said, well, an eye for an eye just leaves the whole world blind. Well, I respect Gandhi enormously, but he was just wrong there. An eye for an eye does not leave the whole world blind. It leaves some people with one eye and the rest of us much more careful about other people's eyes. And punishment may have a disciplinary side effect. It may reform the other person's character in positive ways, but that's not its main goal. Discipline, however, is never punishment. It's never punitive. God punishes unbelievers. That's what hell is. God disciplines his children. God never punishes his children. Christ took our punishment so that we don't have to bear it. Now, with all that as background, let's look at what the Bible says about, number one, the nature of divine discipline. Secondly, the purpose of divine discipline. And thirdly, our attitude and what it should be under divine discipline. And I'm just going to tell you, we're not going to get to all three of these today. We're only going to get to number one, and you'll have to come back next week for number two and number three. First, the the nature of divine discipline. Discipline, first of all, is described in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7 as hardship. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians living in and around Jerusalem who were under terrible persecution. And they were sorely tempted to sort of pack all the, uh, pack it in with the whole Jesus thing and just go back to being good Jews and worshiping at the temple and being like everybody else because it, it had gotten very costly in that context to be a Christ follower. And so they're undergoing very difficult things. And a little bit later on in the letter, some of those things are explicitly described. Being arrested and separated from your children and knowing that there's nobody there to care for them having your goods plundered out of your household, torture, things like that. Those things are happening to these people. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to these Christians to encourage them to stay faithful. And he's describing some of the things that are happening to them as discipline, hardship. Hardship or pain or circumstances in our lives which we don't like and from which we would probably choose to be released as soon as possible are the things he's describing as discipline there. Now, things come into our lives as well that are difficult, and and, uh, this hardship might come from the hands of another person, like a boss or a neighbor. It might come from uh, someone with some kind of authority or power over you who uses that power to make your life difficult, Uh, even a spouse or a difficult child. It might be economic hardship. It might be a lack of money. It might be physical hardship, some kind of disease or injury or disability. These things are happening, and they do happen. Secondly, the Bible insists that this hardship is for our good. We find this in in verse 10. Uh, the, the, The writer says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us 
for our good. And notice that little word, but, in verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us this way, but God disciplines us another way. The NIV translates uh, the, the, it, this passage, the manner in which our fathers disciplined us as they thought best. The King James Version reads, um, after the, they, our fathers disciplined us after their own pleasure. And I, I think that's actually a, a better translation because it gives more fully the sense of the original Greek. The, the original Greek word, dokeo, carries two connotations, and no one English translation brings both of those out very well at all. The first sense in which the word is used is captured by the phrase, as seemed best, or as they thought best. Our fathers disciplined us as seemed best. And what this allows for is a partial knowledge of the situation by our fathers. And it allows for a fallibility, but a fallibility with good intentions. The sense then is your, your own fathers, they did the best they could to discipline you properly, but they were often confused about how to go about it. But God has perfect knowledge when he disciplines you, and so he always gets it exactly right. Isn't it nice to know that when our Heavenly Father applies hardship to us for the purpose of discipline, that he's not making the mistakes that our earthly fathers make? I can remember one time when my children were small and I was a new father, and I had to learn to discipline and correct my little girls. And uh, I remember one time, for some reason, that, that Evelyn generally responded to me more sensitively than she did to, to Laura. And there was one night where she was upstairs in her room, and she was just, the lights were off, and she was supposed to be going to sleep. And she was just up there having a good old time, talking to herself and singing to herself. And my wife asked me to go upstairs and tell Evelyn to go to sleep. And uh, I go upstairs, and she's sitting up in bed with the lights out. She's talking, and she's playing. She still does that now. And uh, sometimes I want to go upstairs and yell at her again. But, but I went up, and I burst into the room suddenly on purpose, and I turned the lights on, and I said very sternly, it's night-night time. You go night-night. And then I kissed her, and I hugged her, and I turned out the lights, and she lay down, and she went to sleep. And I was pretty proud of myself. And afterwards, my wife came to me and said that I had probably been sterner and harsher than was necessary, that I didn't need to burst in suddenly like I did. I didn't need to turn on the light. I probably could have used a gentler tone. And as I thought about it, she was right. I disciplined her in that moment as I thought best. But my thinking was wrong. With the best of intentions, my discipline was unnecessarily harsh towards my daughter. But God's discipline isn't. He applies the perfect amount and the perfect kind of pain to you for only as long as you absolutely need it to produce his desired results. So when I undergo disciplinary trials and I'm tempted to think that God doesn't know what he's doing and that the pain is too intense or that it's lasting too long, I can turn to my Bible and I can read it and I can know that that is not true. 
I know what my feelings are telling me. I know what my desires are telling me. But it's not true. There's a second sense, though, of this Greek word dokeo that's brought out by the King James Version's translation, and I, and I like it a little bit better. It indicates not an outage, not, a, not a, a lack of wisdom, but a lack of goodwill on the part of our earthly fathers. But sometimes our earthly fathers, even earthly fathers who are on the whole good fathers, they simply discipline out of wrath and out of anger. They don't have the, the well-being of their child wholly in view as they administer discipline. And some fathers don't have it in view at all. They're just angry. They're angry at their children. And they're going to vent that anger on their children. And they're going to make them pay for whatever it was that made them angry. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator, writes, Our earthly parents chastened us for their own pleasure. Sometimes they did it to gratify their passions rather than to reform our manners. This is a weakness the fathers of our flesh are subject to. And this they should carefully watch against. For hereby they dishonor that parental authority which God has put upon them and very much, uh, and very much hinder the efficacy of their chastisements. A child knows deep down inside when he or she is being disciplined appropriately and when he or she is simply being made an object of the parent's anger and is being, they're being made the recipients of an abuse of authority. Appropriate discipline may make the child angry for a while, may raise a cry of protest, and that's fine. Discipline's supposed to be unpleasant. That's how it works. But discipline administered because of the capricious passions or administered in an uncontrolled anger and harshness, will end up backfiring. It will be ineffective discipline because it will provoke a child to wrath. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. He says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. God's discipline, says the writer to the Hebrews, is never capricious. It's never done in uncontrolled anger or in a fit of rage. It's never, ever unnecessarily harsh. When God takes you to the woodshed, the strokes he administers for your correction are never harder than they need to be. And there are never more of them than there need to be. So if you find yourself resentful and angry under the Lord's discipline, it's not because he's being unnecessarily harsh, it's because you're being unnecessarily pig-headed. And that's a recipe for more discipline, isn't it? We'll explore that in detail a little bit more next week. One, one thing we ought to say before we wrap all of this up, all discipline is painful. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, doesn't it? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Does that mean that every painful thing that happens in your life is discipline? No, it does not. There's a, a wonderful commentator named Arthur W. Pink, who has, I think, the best commentary on the book of Hebrews. And because uh, he pulls from all the other commentaries that, that he was aware of through history. 
And he says this. If I can find the page. He says this. Yet it is very necessary for us to point out at this stage that all the sufferings of the believers of believers in this world are not divine rebukes for personal transgressions. Here, too, we need to be on guard against lopsidedness. After we have apprehended the fact that God does take notice of the iniquities of his people and uses the rod upon them, it is so easy to jump to the conclusion that when we see an afflicted Christian, God must be visiting his displeasure upon him. That is a sad and a serious error. Some of the very choicest of God's saints have been called on to endure the most painful and the most protracted sufferings. Some of the most faithful and eminent servants of Christ have encountered the most relentless and extreme persecution. Not only is this a fact of observation, but it is plainly revealed in Holy Writ. And then a few paragraphs later, he says this, Yet here again, we need to be very much on our guard, for the flesh is ever ready to pervert even the holy things of God and make an evil use of that which is good. When God is chastising a Christian for his sins, it is so easy for him to suppose that this is not the case and to falsely comfort himself with the thought that God is only developing his graces or permitting him to have a closer fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Were we visited with afflictions personally, I'm sorry, where we are visited with afflictions personally, it is always the safest policy to assume that God has a controversy with us and to humble ourselves beneath his mighty hand and to say with Job, show me wherefore thou contendest with me. And when he has convicted me of my fault, to penitently confess it and forsake it. But where others are concerned, it is not for us to judge, though sometimes God reveals the cause to his servants. So in other words, if bad things come into your life, Pink says, the first thing you should do is say, am I being disciplined for some sinful habit? But the Lord has said, enough. We're going to deal with this now. And seek him and ask him that question, and he will answer that question. He will reveal it to you one way or another, and then cooperate with them. But if your conscience is clear, then you can say, well, whatever's happening to me, even though I don't like it, this is not the Lord contending with me for my sin. This is just something that he's doing for some other reason. In other words, there are times when God brings painful trials into our lives that are not the result of our sin. And, and Jesus teaches us this, doesn't he? Uh, in, in the book of John, there's a man who was born blind, and the, and the disciples ask him, who sinned, this man who was born blind or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither one. Jesus says, this happens so that the, ra- so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus healed him. But the path of wisdom suggests that when pain does come into our lives, that we do search ourselves carefully and prayerfully, and that our first assumption should be that it is divine discipline and chastisement, and we should humble ourselves under it and and bear it patiently and bear it without complaint. The, The surest way out of discipline, divine discipline, is to do what the psalmist says and kiss the rod that is chastising us. God loves a humble and a contrite spirit. 
And he is always close with those who flee their sin and who want to be pleasing children to him. Father, as we close our worship this morning, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer. Amen.